Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you Andrew Kirker. Andrew is a parasit skier and he is a gold and silver medalist from the 2018 Pyeongchang Paralympic Games. He has qualified for three Paralympic Games so far but only actually competed in two from memory. So welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thank you. Happy to be here. (laughs) Um, A lot of that is due to my nature of mistakes, I guess we could call it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what I was going to lead on to is that being a sit skier, sometimes injuries are part and parcel of the the territory that you go into, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that, but we'll we'll find out a little bit b- about you beforehand. Is that all right? Yeah, totally. Ask away any questions you might have. Uh, I have broken a lot of bones, so mm. you- I'm wondering which bones you haven't broken yet. But, but we'll get on to that. <laughs> it's a ski racing in general. I think you know that, though. You were my nutritionist <laughs> for a while. I was. Yeah, yeah. you helped suggest collagen and a lot of other things to ingest i remember that okay um (laughs) (laughs) so well let's start off with firstly talk telling us about your background and your impairment and how you got into sit skiing okay uh my background is an alaskan i'm a u.s paralympic alpine skier i broke my back in an atv accident When I was 13 years old, I broke my thoracic T10 through 12, shattering my uh, thoracic 11 in my spine, and it caused partial paraplegia. So I walk with leg braces and crutches, and I use a wheelchair part-time, and so I sit-ski because I don't quite have enough muscle function in my legs to ski fully, but I have just enough to still look cool. So, but um, I say Alaskan because as you know, Liz, like Alaska is a huge part of my life. That's like, Uh, yeah, my nutrition is like based around Alaska, you know? Yep, absolutely. It's a lot of seafood and other wild caught animals, I guess is the best way of describing it. I like to say things I kill myself. That's. (laughs) favorite way of explaining my nutritional diet and then we have a garden so i guess the the garden plants that i kill myself as well that's my Uh favorite diet when i'm in alaska so what's there's a special term for that you know it what is it pescatarian is that it or something yep 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 but you you you're not quite though because you do kill other animals as well oh yeah totally well, okay. let's just call it the back to nature diet. Yeah, yeah, it is. I, I don't know. It's the purest form of humanity, if you ask me. So, were you you were an athlete before your injury, weren't you? I, you know, I was. I was a wrestler, and uh, mm-hmm. I think being a wrestler really helped to mold how I pay attention to my diet. Because, as you know, I've always kind of been kind of careful with it. So. Yeah. And wrestlers are super careful, other than the fact that, like, they're overly careful and hurt themselves in the process, I think. <laughs> um, yep. Maybe lose a little too much weight, a little too fast or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So. And, and so, yeah, what's your classification in terms of in the sit ski? Um, well, 
there's a wider there's a wide array of classifications you know people who don't have their abdominals people who mm-hmm. uh, don't have any kind of leg function whatsoever you know people who uh, even don't have a lot of chest muscles and everything that ski uh, my classification is 121 which is the second mm-hmm. most functional classification as an adaptive sit skier the most functional is a 122 who is a uh, double amputee so the only person mm-hmm. that has, I guess, less of a classification than me in the Sitski category would be a double amputee. And it's really close. We really, it's barely, it's hardly a difference. It's not even 1% of a difference. So um, mm-hmm. the best way to explain that is like, if we race for a minute down the mountain, I get just less than a second off. So I don't quite right. a second off against them. So it doesn't really amount to, to much yep and and so go into that a little bit more in terms of when you look at a sit ski race everyone races against each other even though there's a number of different classes within that one event and so it's the less functionally strong individuals the lower class individuals they get a time added on to their their runtime, or how does that work? Oh, so it it works. It works on a, and I think it's going to be changing shortly. But right. because uh, FIST just recently took over the International Ski Federation, just took over Paralympic ski again. So, but I, so mm-hmm. the way it goes is you have a set percentage of what your time is, and so your time runs at a slower pace. So. It's mm-hmm. basically like I get 3% of my time taken off, I guess. That's kind of the way it is. Time uh-huh. runs slower for me than it does for a 12-2, even though it's barely. Like, you could never tell by looking at a clock side by side. Because yep. uh, by the time it ended, I would have less than one second, you know. But mm-hmm. if you were to compare like a 10-1 to a 12-2, you would notice a big difference. So it's basically like mm-hmm. you run two clocks side by side and he gets like percent yeah. or 13% off of his time. So if you were to run six, 60 seconds, he would still have like 10 seconds left on the clock. And right. that's, that's due to the fact that like uh, a 10-1, which is a classification that doesn't really need explaining, but it's a, a, a 10-1 is someone who like doesn't have any abdominals. So they're going to mm-hmm. be more disabled and it's going to be harder for them to race. So it's just kind of the, even the playing field. And yep. yeah, and the sit skiers compete against the standing skiers that also compete against the VI skiers. So we're all competing against each other with, within our respective sexes. So like within the male and the female uh, category, mm-hmm. we're all competing against each other. So like males compete against males, females compete against females. And in... This, this process of, of alpine skiing, I think the big scheme of things is to try to get everyone to where it's one category. So we all just like all the men just compete against the men, all the women just compete. Against right. men. But it's started as an adaptive sport. So like, it's really hard to say what's fair when you're pinning a person with two legs, maybe one of them doesn't work completely properly up against a sit skier you know so Mm. just trying Mm. 
and it's a very long scientific process and they've been doing it for a lot of years but i know that they're trying to mold all of the adaptive ski athletes into one category so instead of being like a sit ski class a standing class and a vi class they're trying to make it like a men's classification like an adaptive men's classification mm. And I don't know how soon that's going to happen, but I know that they're trying. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So for those who are listening who've never seen a sit-ski before, can you kind of describe what your sit-ski setup looks like? Yeah, totally. So it's like a ski boot that attaches to my butt to basically (laughs) my legs go into kind of an aerodynamic cover. And that's because I'm fancy. i been doing it for a while and I have friends mm-hmm. like to support me like team Toyota what's up <laughs> uh, they made a sit ski for me and so I have a leg cover and mm-hmm. the leg cover is attached to an aluminum stainless steel mechanism that is also attached to a motorcycle shock and mm-hmm. that motorcycle shock kind of acts as my legs and my compression to keep my back from blowing out too often and then that uh, connects to a foot piece and that foot piece connects into a ski just like anybody who's ever skied before you know there's a toe piece there's a heel piece attached to a mm-hmm. and i have a basic foot piece that click click into any ski and that's how i ski but you've also got two implements that you have on one on each arm oh. as well to help with the balance that's true that's true but they're not they're not necessarily made there are sit skiers out there that ski just with uh, ski poles. I do use, I use outriggers and what they are is, so I also forgot to mention that like my butt is attached to a bucket with straps and I strap myself down to this mechanism when I'm racing and explaining it, it sounds crazy. <laughs> In person, it seems less crazy. <laughs> Yeah, well, especially when you're strapped in at the speeds that you're going at, it, it does seem a little crazy, but it's all for safety, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's it's safe. <laughs> <laughs> and so the the outriggers, what do they look uh, like? Outriggers are basically the ski poles, but they have a handle on them with a small spring, mm-hmm. and um, the base of the the base of the outrigger is like a ski pole. It's sharp, digs into ice. I can push myself, accelerate myself, maneuver myself. And then when I pull the string, mm-hmm. they pop down into race mode and they pretty much become arm skis. And I use these arm skis to both slide on the snow and then keep my balance at high speeds. Mm-hmm. That's really the basis of it. If someone needs help imagining it, they can Google it. It's yeah, yeah Google Sitski or Monoski and if, if you're trying to, to picture skis on an arm that are kind of like poles, it's best to do that. And that'll, that'll help. Yeah. Yeah. That'll help give them an idea of what I do. And yep. yeah, sit skiing on its own is a pretty crazy thing. Like we have, we've competed in X games. We've had a lot of things go for us. It's fun to watch. We crash a lot. And I think. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about those crashes. <laughs> so. In the speeds that you're doing, can you give us an example of the speed that you might be doing for a downhill? Uh, downhills typically like sixty to seventy miles an hour. Yeah, uh, I don't know what that is in kilometers, like a hundred and something. Yeah, 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 bit over a hundred. Yeah, and so 
you're manoeuvring one single ski around gates on different terrains and and so you know sometimes that terrain is quite slippery and you're using a shift in your body weight or your center of gravity to to kind of help with the the turns correct yeah so what happens is you typically and this is where the factoring system comes into play because it uses a lot of core a lot of hip muscles and a lot of shoulder mobility to Mm -hmm. help you maneuver on the snow. So what happens is I create angles by pinching my core, using my abdominals, using the weight of my arms and my shoulders, and I accelerate while balancing on a single ski and Mm -hmm. racing down the mountain. And there's we compete in all the same disciplines just like able-bodied alpine skiers do. You know, uh, we have downhill, which is 50-plus meter turns, Super G, which is 40-plus-ish meter turns. GS, which is 30-ish meter turns, sometimes a little less. And then there's slalom, which is stupid. (laughs) 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 It's a lot of turns. So slalom is like when you see people like hitting poles, like dang, 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 like they're racing down the mountain. That's that's the one that I'm not good at. And it's really not fun in a sit ski because you hit your head a lot. Oh, and it's also really bouncy. Like you, as you say, you've got a motorcycle shock yeah. as your as your leg. I guess the the shock absorber, yeah. but it's less. You know, the dynamic of that is is you know you can't you can't change the amount of shock that it absorbs or anything. You know, it is what it is. Whereas I think with your legs, you can kind of you know vary that a little bit. Just. So does that mean that it's it's a more bouncy ride than it would be on a, you know, if you were standing on a ski? Yes, um, and some people are much better at it than others. Hmm. Part of adapting, for me, it's the, the fearlessness of going fast. You know, downhill, super G, like kind of like the Chinese downhill type portion, like go as fast as you can, uh, go off mm-hmm. jumps, surviving or not. That's kind of like my thing. And I really enjoy that. And I have never been horribly bad at slalom. I've always been pretty good. I've gotten World Cup medals in slalom. Um, and it's, mm-hmm. it's a fun event. It, it's, it's just less fun than the others for me. And that's why I tend <laughs> to do it a lot less. And it's, it's a lot turnier. And, you know, when you're in a sit ski, you have to hit the gates. Um, and some people mm-hmm. are good at cross blocking. But most people don't. I was one of the people that didn't. So I hit my head a lot on gates. And it's mm. fun. No. And so concussions are definitely, you know, a thing for, for you. I know you've had a number of concussions through some of the, the crashes that you've had. Do you, can you give us an idea of how many concussions you've had so if far? If I could remember, I'd tell you. No. <laughs> oh, um, uh, well, I can tell you my one just before Beijing right before I competed I think it was two weeks before I left for Beijing and it was just an unfortunate scenario the toe piece on my ski broke off and oh no I tomahawked forward while training downhill and I smashed my on the snow and I broke my cheekbone and I got two blackish eyes they weren't very black. I have a cool thing with bruising. I don't typically bruise. It's just a genetic thing, I guess. I don't bruise a 
lot. So maybe it's because I eat at a cast iron, right? Liz, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> healthy iron in my blood. I don't bruise. Uh, and so for me to get a black eye has to be a pretty big deal. Yeah. Typically, I'm not saying I've been hit in the face many times, but I've been hit in the face at least once. And I don't typically bruise. It'll swell up, but it won't mm-hmm. turn purple. Uh, so for me to have mm-hmm. two black eyes and a broken cheekbone, and a, I, had, I had a su- significant broken nose. Mm-hmm. And that was my most recent concussion, and that was just before the games. But that was my only concussion for a while. Mm-hmm. The I Good. literally can't tell you the one I had before that. Uh, I can't remember, but it had been a while. It had been a few years, for sure. I had, mm-hmm. I know I've had at least three major concussions and a few other minor concussions throughout my career. I think of my I think my total is coming to eight, mm-hmm. but only three that have resulted in loss of consciousness. Okay. So can you tell us what your training kind of looks like at the moment? I know so it's probably a tough one to kind of answer because you've just come out of shoulder surgery. So how long since your surgery? Well... I broke my arm in Beijing, so mm-hmm. last March at the games, and I'm a toot my own horn kinda a little. I raced the downhill with a broken arm. I broke it just prior. The wind took me into the fence, and uh, I broke my arm. And I decided to still race with it. I broke my humerus Oof. on my right, right at my right shoulder, up inside the side. There's kind of two where your 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 two bones of your humerus kind of sit. I broke off one edge of it that sits inside the rock of my shoulder. And I raced and I got fourth place and I almost I almost did good. I almost did. Uh, I almost got a podium with a broken arm and I got unfortunate in a lot of different ways. I had a headwind which slows you down. I, I have a broken arm that slowed me down. A yep. Slowed you down a bit. <laughs> um, but I, I still almost got, I got fourth place by just a few hundredths of a second. So it was very, mm. but then after that, I had 12 weeks worth of recovery because of the area that I broke it inside of my shoulder. It takes a long time to heal because there's a lot of motion, mm-hmm. a lot of movement that just kind of inherently happens in that spot. And where mm. I broke it a lot of, muscles attached to that area as well like my rotator cuff and yep. supraspinatus and a lot of different things in my shoulder attached to that area and so after 12 weeks of recovering we found out that my bone had been healed up and everything was great and then I went in and I was still having some pretty major pain and I was wanting to get mm. some stuff figured out and we figured out that I had torn my bicep tendon when I had mm. arm so I had some bicep tenodesis done where they go in and they cut your bicep tendon and reattach it and i also had some torn rotator cuff labrum and ac joint issues that were chronic so like i had torn my rotator cuff in the past but it wasn't completely torn so they were like well it's gonna need to be fixed in the future but right now is not a big deal. So they, they went in and they debrided it. So where the bun- bunch of muscles attach, let's say, if you can imagine, like 50% of those muscles on 
the left and right side or both sides were kind of torn off. And so what they did they went in and they cut those muscles away and pretty much made room for my new muscles to grow as I stretch. Mm -hmm. And so that's the most recent break I've had to my shoulder that was in big. And I'm back to skiing now, kind of, sort of. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so what does skiing in terms of training look like for you? Like how, how often are you on snow versus, you know, are, are you in the gym? You know, how many, how many sessions a, a week on average would you do? So I'm currently in a transitional phase right now. And as far as sports transition. Go and you know you know this, Liz. But uh, as far as yep. transitional phases go, there's like a point where you go from physical therapy to more exercise, and then you have kind of like uh, less skiing, and then mm -hmm. the PT ends, the exercise decreases, and the skiing becomes more exponential as those things happen. So right now, my main focus is I do PT once a week for my shoulder. I do three days minimum of full-time exercise. So that's like strength and cardio and like 1200 calorie days in the gym. And then mm -hmm. I, which you probably have something to say about that, which you always did. Um, and then there's, uh, the, the, there's skiing and I make sure to do skiing at least three times a week. And the skiing is going to ramp up as uh, as the exercise will decrease and as the physical therapy will end. But I still have another, about a, another month of this transitional phase that I'm going through. Right. And, and so from a nutrition perspective, do you change or do you focus on anything in particular whilst you're in that rehab recovery phase as opposed to, you know, that would be different than if you were just in a normal training phase? Uh, yes. So when I'm in a normal training phase, uh, worrying about what I eat a little bit less, just making sure that I eat enough is mm -hmm. uh, kind of important because, you know, you spend, like during races and during competing and everything, you're spending six hours a day skiing and you're out there yeah. in cold weather and you're burning a lot of calories. Right now, my big focus and I learned a lot of this from you, is primarily protein. Mm -hmm. You know, subsidizing my protein throughout the day and eating low amounts of protein, but consistently throughout the day to help me build the muscles that I need to get back into that kind of athletic shape mm -hmm. that I really want to acquire. And then, you know, that's, I think that's, that's primarily my focus. That and hydration mm -hmm. is a huge key factor that I have a tendency to, to focus on. Yep. So you mentioned before, early on in the podcast about collagen, have you been using that as part of, as an adjunct to, to that recovery? Was actually, yeah, I, I do actually. Yeah. And you know, I forgot to mention that and I thought about it, but I just didn't say it with my mouth. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I supplement a lot more, uh, especially in that recovery phase. Mm -hmm. And supplements are something I try to be very careful with and I try not to eat too many of, but I do take a substantial amount of supplements and, you know, I take them fairly inconsistently depending on the supplement, but there are a few that I, I take consistently that I notice really help me, especially I've broken uh, 26 bones throughout my career mm -hmm. and I have a lot of, uh, I'm 31 years old 
and uh, I I have sore joints and muscles, and I've had injuries, mm. and you know things of that nature. And I found that there are there are certain supplements that really assist with that, and like fish oil is one of them, collagen, mm-hmm. and so those are things that I make sure to supplement, especially when I'm in that recovery stage. Uh, when I'm on the road, I take it a little less, a little more sporadically, but I still make sure to, you know, take it at least every couple days just to kind of uh, keep my body healthy in those ways. And, you know, I, I, I do notice a huge difference, like in my soreness and my flexibility and uh, my overall f- muscle fatigue levels when I don't take it. Mm. Which is interesting because your natural diet is fairly high in in fish oils anyway because you eat a lot of seafood and particularly salmon. Yeah. So do you find you you actually it's interesting that you find that even taking the supplement on top of that is is beneficial. Yeah. Um well again I this is just my perspective. You know, I like to think of things hmm. from a, a natural, a natural point of view, and humans throughout history, fish were a lot easier to get a hold of than, let's say, killing, mm-hmm. or killing a sheep or killing something else like that. And so, I think, I think people are meant to eat. At least most people, I am for sure, meant to eat a lot more fish than what I do eat. And I eat a lot of fish. Catch mm-hmm. a lot of fish. I live in Alaska. I catch salmon. I catch halibut. I live in the wild and catch wildlife. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I, I, I notice it helps, but it, it just doesn't. And I take less fish oil in the summertime when I'm eating more fish. Yeah. I, I notice that the fish oil really does help. And I don't eat fish every day. Like I like to think my ancestors did, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And so over the years, you know, what would you say are some of the biggest nutrition challenges that you've faced? Oof. Uh, traveling. Mm-hmm. This nutritional challenges when traveling, and especially for me being a sit skier, is eating enough and yep. eating the right things at the right time. I had a very bad habit of not eating a lot during the day, you know, mm-hmm. a, a good breakfast, but then, you know, skiing for hours straight, getting very focused on that, and then waiting until dinner time until I realized I was hungry. So yep. taking my my biggest challenge was finding the right things to eat at the right time. And so what were some of the solutions to that? What have you found works well for you when you're training and you're on the hill that's easy to eat and you know kind of satisfies both that hunger and that fueling need? Well for for me it wasn't necessarily about hunger. Uh for for me mm-hmm. about getting the right nutrition. Yeah, I, I, I yeah. As an ind- I, I'm a very busy person. When I start something, yes. I don't like to stop doing it. So uh, for me, it was honestly like soy milk was a big one for me because it was a mm-hmm. digestible protein. It didn't fill up my stomach. I was able to just drink it real quick, like I could drink a a, a bottle worth of soy milk or whatever real quick mm-hmm. and be done. And so that was an easy way for me to get good healthy protein good healthy proteins, good healthy calories and carbs uh, in a quick liquid that was fast, quickly absorbed. And I was able to, you know, keep my muscle tone and everything up because of it. And uh, Mm -hmm. when I was cycling, I did that a lot. I used to cycle a lot. You know that. 
yeah. when I was cycling, because you'd be cycling for hours and hours and hours, and it was hard to eat something while mm -hmm. biking, because it would make you want to puke. And uh, soy milk was helped with that, because it was a liquid I was able to drink little bits at a time. It supplied me with protein, supplied me with carbs, calories, and I was able to uh, burn off those, those simple carbs pretty easy. Mm -hmm. And I seem to recall that you also were fairly big on Triscuits at one I, point like, in time. I did like Triscuits. Yeah, Triscuits helped. They, they were tasty <laughs> and easy, and you, I, you liked them because they had a lot of carbs. I could just eat one real fast, and it didn't do a whole lot. Mm. One, one Triscuit contained enough to help. And they had a lot of flavors, and eating them with cheese is always good. There's easy snacks. Yeah, snacks. Yep. Yeah. Snacks were the secret for me. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think snacks are kind of the key, especially to any l long burning situation. Uh, yeah. They're, they're easy to eat. And I think you kind of talked about that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and what about your hydration when you're on snow? So the soy milk helps with both, you know, pr providing protein as well as providing fluid. Do you use any other form of, of, of fluid when you're out training? I try to drink water mm -hmm. dry. Like you really just can't hydrate enough mm. uh, when you're out there, when you're skiing, when you're on the snow, and it, specifically while you're being athletic at altitude. So a lot of times, yeah, nicer. yeah, we'll go to Europe, we go to the Alps, we go up to 10,000 feet or whatever. We go up to, you know, 3,000 meters, 4,000 meters, and that's where we're skiing. And it's really hard to stay hydrated at those high altitudes, especially when you're in a foreign time zone. And so just drinking water whenever I thought about drinking water was very helpful for me. Mm -hmm. Trying to drink water consistently. And I never could drink enough. I remember that. Yeah. But I, I was also never technically dehydrated. I was never as dehydrated as everyone else on my team. And that was always a good thing. <laughs> 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 tests with us, that's still a thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's still a thing. <laughs> Wherever we go when we travel, it gave us an idea of how hydrated we were. I would always stay hydrated, but other people wouldn't. I remember that. Great. And so, Kirka, you've you've dealt with a lot of health practitioners obviously over over the years what have you found in terms of their ability to really understand what you're dealing with from not just the sport perspective but also your your actual impairment perspective and how best to to treat that what do you think of recommendations you can give to new practitioners who are just starting to work with para sports that may help sort of speed that up? Oof, that's a really good question because I think I've only really encountered two doctors in my life that are maybe three, maybe three doctors in my life. And I've seen quite a few, at least 20 doctors. So mm -hmm. I've only seen really three in my life that were conscious of that. And mm -hmm. I think simply asking questions to the individual is going to be uh, a key and important factor mm -hmm. to that given situation because disabilities span a wide array and there have been multiple times where if the practitioner instead of just kind of putting me as another notch of a surgery on their belt asked me those questions recovery would have gone a lot more smooth Mm. and think 
yep. have gone better as I've become older and I've experienced these things, both positive and negative from the medical side and the medical standpoint. I now uh, have the intuition to just kind of be forward thinking and say, I need these things from a doctor. Yep. And a lot of people with yep. disabilities aren't like that. They just kind of, people put a lot of trust in practitioners. They put a lot of trust in doctors, you know, people just trust them and they hope that you're going to give everything that is best to them. Like they hope that you're going to do the best for them that you can. And they just trust that you're right about everything. Throughout my time, I have discovered that, that is not necessarily true. And I think being a practitioner and asking important questions or questions that might come to mind, you know, um, do you foresee any issues that this could cause with you as a person with a disability? Do you foresee how this will impact your life? Is there something that I can do to help in this given situation? Mm -hmm. And, you know, things like that, because, you know, being an individual, I am, I am a paraplegic be that like, let's say broke my shoulder. And then I was coming back home to Alaska in the mm -hmm. time doesn't really make sense. So no, yeah, as an individual, <laughs> go somewhere warm for uh, a month before I could finally start using my arm again. Mm. Um, yep. Having uh, doctors that are able to, you know, write those scripts, write those notes, suggest that to an insurance company or assist you in those type of ways is really helpful, especially like that sense of forethought, uh, is going yep. to be huge for a person with a disability or even ask. Mm. Yep. And what about potentially new or a new athlete who may be interested in becoming a sit skier? What recommendations would you have for them in terms of how do they get involved in the sport? Oh, uh, that's a good question. Around the world, there are a bunch of different recreational programs. And most of the recreational programs around the world also supply some form of a race program. And so the step one, mm -hmm. learn to ski, join a recreational adaptive program. And Google is going to be your best friend with those mm -hmm. aspects. If there's a ski resort or a ski hill near you, I'm going to say within an hour or two, chances are that there's some kind of club that will transport you. And so you want to contact an adaptive, an adaptive recreational club. Or, mm -hmm. you know, if, if whoever's listening to this, if they know someone who is disabled and you're like, you know what, that kid is super ballsy and would probably love to ski, just doing a, like a five-minute Google search to find an adaptive recreational program in your area. Chances are they have a bus that'll take them at least on the weekends to get some training or some, some classes or some lessons. And that is where I think someone should start. And everyone progresses at their own rate. And you're never really too old or too young to start skiing, you know? And I say sit skiing is just like stand up skiing. And, you know, there are all levels. There's recreational levels, there's blues, there's greens, there's the magic carpet. You know, there's blacks, blacks, there's stupid stuff that I do. You know, there's all <laughs> of things in between. And um, I definitely suggest starting anywhere um, and trying it. 
And the cool thing is, is like, especially with these recreational programs, there there's options, you know, you, you can go out and you don't have to be in any sort of danger. People might take care of you. They might hold on to you to keep you from falling over the entire time, whatever it may be. Um, Mm. Or they might just say, go for it. That's what happened to me, you know, and I had fun. (laughs) So uh, I suggest just starting, starting anywhere, finding a recreational program near you, asking them what they offer and going for it. Yeah. Well, I hope we haven't scared a few people off by the fact that we've talked a bit about your accidents. Um, But (laughs) that doesn't necessarily have to be them. That's me. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's Kamikaze Kirk, yeah. and he's <laughs> he's well known for that. Yeah, that's pretty true. I'm well known on the World Cup circuit for that. That's how I win gold medals. Uh, it's also how I break bones. So there's some. <laughs> there are competitors on the World Cup circuit that haven't broken a single bone skiing and still win gold medals. It does happen. That could be you. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Cool. Awesome. Well, Kirka, I know that you're you're sitting outside of a hardware store and so you need to go and get the hardware that you came for. So we're going to let you go, but not without one final question, which is what is your favorite food? Oh, my favorite food is pho. Yep. Yep. Explain. The Vietnamese soup. Yep. It is Mm-hmm. rice noodle soup uh, with simple carbs and lots of beef flank and tripe and yummy fats. Mm. Spicy? I do eat it spicy. Very spicy. Yep. Whole jalapenos. Give me that bad boy. No. <laughs> like Mexican food. My wife is Mexican. Uh, mm-hmm. So I have a little bit of spice in my life. I can tell you that right now. awesome well thank you so much for your time your energy and and your attention to to detail (laughs) Um, uh, it's been great catching up with you and i hope that the rest of the rehab for the shoulder goes smoothly and with that we see you back out i know world champs has just passed us by recently yes good to be an off you i guess post paralympic games so you'll get back up there and and keep pushing forward for for the next round i would say if there was a time for me to get hurt it would be now mm-hmm. thank you liz i appreciated the podcast <laughs> and thank you i had fun and we miss you kirk is obviously built on his knowledge over the years around how to adjust his diet relative to where his training is at and also when he needs more attention to detail for recovery from injuries and any surgeries that he's had. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you like it, please share it with your friends and family. And I hope you join us next time when we talk to Greg Smith, who is a bit of a legend in Australian parasport, having been a track and field and wheelchair rugby player and is currently the national strength and conditioning coach for the Australian wheelchair rugby team.